0: Uh, Colonel Malbrick, I've just finished up 33 years regular army. This is my first foray into being a reservist. Um, Something I've discovered I'm not very good at and and I'll come back to that as I go through the models. I've been pretty fortunate. I had um, two commands as a lieutenant, I had two as a captain. I was fortunate enough to get two subunit commands. My command as a lieutenant colonel and command as a colonel. And what that meant was I got the opportunity to make lots of mistakes and learn lots of stuff. And one of the things i found with learning through experience is getting to do stuff multiple times. You do something once, you don't really get to learn from it. You get to do it multiple times. You get to see what works, what doesn't work and form your own perspectives on how you do business. And through that, I became a collector of models, leadership models, personality models. Uh, From the last presentation, I'm gonna get that motivation model Actually, think about how that fits in with all of the other ways I think about things. Uh, I don't know what you guys took away from uh, the presentation yesterday on the uh, the lion killer approach, uh, but those windows. You know, I took that away as a model. I didn't necessarily agree with all of it, but I said, sort of hang on, I could use three or four of those, and how does that fit with other things?" Uh, so. Kenneth Patrick mentioned he'd heard the term pracademic yesterday and spoke about it. He heard that from me and he stole a few of my things and that's the second problem of presenting after him. The first one is, uh, my presentation I don't think is as interesting as his uh, and certainly won't be as life-changing because what I'll be talking about is stuff that you should be pretty familiar with. So I'm going to go through, talk about leadership theories a little bit, not a lot, How many people have a favourite leadership theory or leadership model? Okay, so you'll be happy to know that's no different than the response we got when we briefed this to uh, the lieutenants and troop sergeants. How many people have read leadership doctrine when they're not on a course? Okay, slightly better than what we got from the, um, the lieutenants and sergeants. Why is that? If our job is fundamentally about leadership, why aren't we reaching into the doctrine? Yeah, mate. yeah so um most of us will deal with enough different uh table audiences that we have to module ourselves pretty significantly from table to table events, and also our uh, job we all specific. Uh, what we're actually doing, um, generally consider it more now as a a toolbox. We we take what we need for a specific situation and we can modulate that accordingly rather than it being part of our id or our specific core values uh, that are associated with a certain type of leadership. I think that's an outstanding answer, but is the flip side of that you saying, but our leadership doctrine doesn't give us that, what we need? No, I okay. I'm, I'm, uh, we'll, we'll move on. I think we're pretty much in agreement here. Leadership doctrine... Personal perspective is a Frankenstein mishmash of stuff that's been put together that is not useful to me on a daily basis. Okay, I think it provides some really interesting and provides some good framework, but there's a difference between interesting and useful, okay? So I'm gonna talk about um, three leadership models, uh, two of which I expect you to have heard about, one of which I expect you probably haven't, And then I'll talk about some options for putting them to work. And I'm not trying to teach you these leadership models. I expect that you know them. What I wanna do is talk about how you could actually use them to get better outcomes in your organizations. Uh, There's a lot of leadership theories and they've developed over time from the, this person is a gift of God, they've been born with great leadership skills, all the way through to transactional and transformational theories. And you can read broadly what they are in Doctrine or or Wikipedia, uh, a lot of people that will come out to talk leadership models to you are trying to sell you something, they're trying to sell you their way of doing business. And I'll talk about that a bit more as we go through. Some things to think about, conversations about leadership I think can get derailed by these, is that leadership or is it management? Does it matter? But If it's usable for you, does the particular definition of leadership or management does it matter? Military versus civilian leadership. A lot of this stuff started with us, and we were the experts. And then industry picked it up and built a uh, built big money business out of it. We'll talk about that with a couple of the leadership models. What's the best leadership style? I think you answered that question perfectly before of actually it really depends. Uh, Theory versus practice, and this is where the pracademic element comes into it, I'm not talking to you from a theory perspective or an academic perspective, I'm talking from my practical experience over uh, a long time of implementing leadership models and theories in the environment in a consciously deliberate way. Our Leadership training is a business, it's big money and one of the reasons why our doctrine looks like it does is because of copyright reasons for particular models that we can't include the model as it's been designed in our leadership doctrine, which is why we have a couple of pictures in the doctrine that are inspired by this theory. Uh, uh, leader versus leadership team, well, I think that one's really important and as we look at these models and as you think about leadership, think about what's the difference between me as an individual and then how would that apply actually when it's me with my leadership team and it comes back to some of Colonel Kilpatrick's points about maximising strengths within a leadership team and, uh, and mitigating potential weaknesses. I think leading people versus leading organisations, especially at your level, is a really important consideration. The leadership approach you take to your subunit may be very different to the leadership approach you need to take to your senior NCOs as individuals. And so how you lead your unit versus how you lead your people or key individuals can be quite different. And I spoke briefly before about the difference between interesting and useful. I really hope to make this useful for you and would appreciate that in the feedback, uh, whether I've managed to achieve that or not. So, for me, leadership theories are of no use if they sit in a book on a shelf and never get looked at. They're only useful if you can employ them. And I think their use becomes much greater when They're out there and they can provide a common understanding and a common language to enable discussion with the people you're leading. And that's going to vary uh, in that difference between leading organisation and leading individuals. And the comment before about having a range of tools that you can use uh, is spot on for what I'm talking about with this and looking at a number of the tools. In these models though there's a common theme, um, there's an element of diagnosis, how well do you understand the task, how well do you understand yourself and how well do you understand others. I only want to read a, uh, a small bit from Doctrine, I had a slide that was essentially an unintelligible paragraph that was of uh, little use. However I find this one particularly good. Know yourself and seek self-improvement. To know themselves leaders need to understand their own preferences, strengths and weaknesses including how their behaviour affects others. This allows leaders to take advantages of strengths and to seek self-improvement to overcome weaknesses. Knowing and understanding one's strengths and weaknesses is the first step. Doing something about them is the next. Leaders must take responsibility for shaping their own circumstances and experiences into success. Awareness and control allow people to respond instinctively to what happens around them. And and given the theme of this two days is about know yourself, know others, that bit from doctrine is actually pretty relevant and well structured. I am assuming that everybody is aware of the functional leadership model by John Adair task needs, individual needs, team needs or group needs, and that dynamic of how you mention them. John Adair was an interesting guy. He was a, uh, he's a Lieutenant in the British Army, uh, worked uh, through the ranks for a little while, got out and worked in uh, Arctic shipping for a period of time and eventually found himself back in charge of leadership at Sandhurst. And he looked around and said, hang on, I don't think we're doing this right. And this model came out of his work at Sandhurst in developing military leaders. Because part of why we have leadership models is to actually help us understand and develop military leaders. And this is a really good model to have in the back of your mind around how do I actually balance task, individual and group. And if you guys are like me, it's we're so busy in task... How do I make the time, or find the time, to actually look at those other areas? And I used this uh, when I was OC at 26 Transport Squadron, I walked in, the unit morale was very low, they'd been stuck in task needs, uh, individuals didn't feel that they were valued and we didn't have strong group identity, they'd been stuck so heavily in task needs. And So I briefed this model and said my job as the OC is to try and address that balance and put some effort back into the other circles. What that gave then was a common language to the unit about how I was thinking of leadership of the unit. So my squadron ops guys, uh, my ops sergeants, put a sign on ops door, had this massive circle Task needs, tiny individual and group needs, squadron ops where the other circles just don't matter. And I'm going, hang on, if I've got troops, serge- you know, ops sergeants making a joke with the leadership model and having that conversation, that's actually fairly healthy. And I had a troop commander come into me and go, hey sir, I'd really like to take the guys away on this activity. Um, but she needed me to try and make some space and support that and it wasn't about a task, it was actually purely about developing a bit of group identity and giving them a break as a group. And we were able to make that happen. But the fact that she was actually able to come in and feel confident to say to me, I need to put some focus on group needs, had been normalised by the fact that I put the model out there in discussion. And that gave us a common understanding and it gave a common language to use. And there are multiple examples in the unit. At the end of my time, the unit was still stuck in task needs. Uh, we'd been there, we'd been flogged, It's was the nature of the unit. But the individuals actually felt that they were valued and that we'd actually made some efforts in those areas and we'd managed to build a bit more group identity. And the model's pretty strong in understanding that we stick in, we sit in task needs the majority of the time, and it just seems to be getting busier. But if you neglect individual and group at that expense, Then your ability to continue with task over time will degrade. Okay. Uh, That's the bit we forget about the ADEA model. He also said that these are the functions that leadership occurs. Have a quick scan of those, there'll be nothing in that I think that will be foreign to any of you and it's actually a pretty good list of things that need to occur. So those are the functions he said that we need to achieve in managing the three circles.
1: And you can see how that's
0: flown through and should be fairly fundamental to the training we've all received over time. And because Adair started at uh, Sandhurst, his his is the only model that is uh, pure in our doctrine, I suppose, and this is pretty clear in our doctrine, because he's left it open for people to use for our purpose for education, he's not tried to monetise it the way that um, the next model has. So if you're as a commander, um, understanding the interplay between the circles is useful for you and the long-term consequences of not managing it. But getting it out there as a language and thinking about um, how you can use it in your interactions with your chain of command, both up and down. And if it's that normalised language that actually lets you talk about, we're starting to struggle. I need to be able to invest in the individuals and the teams, otherwise we're not going to be able to maintain the task. And having a common language that normalises that can be useful. How familiar are people with this model, the uh, Percy Blanchard model? Okay, situational leadership model, starts changing the focus, and this is more about dealing with individuals, but you can apply it at um, organisational levels. The key element of this model is that there is no one best leadership style, it's task specific um, and it's based on the needs of the subordinate. The area down here, development levels, is the needs of the subordinate. And it's based on a uh, two factors, competence and attitude. And the model says that when you first get into a role it's likely that you will be high enthusiasm, low competence. And for me that's the classic brand new lieutenant out of Duntrain. They come into the unit really enthusiastic, don't know what they don't know but they want to get on and do the job. They'll then actually uh, progress through D2 which is where they're starting to realise what they don't know, they still haven't developed full job competence and their enthusiasm will start to drop as they realise it's not going to be as easy as they expect and there's a bit more work involved and they're not quite as good as they thought they were. They'll then step through into, uh, and that's the disillusioned learner element. They then step through into a capable, but cautious um, contributor. And in that area, they're actually starting to build their competence, but their confidence isn't quite there yet. They don't necessarily have that self-belief. And then eventually they'll move down into high confidence and high commitment, where they actually know their job, and they're confident that they're good at it, and then we'll post them so they can start the process again. And think about yourselves as this relates. And this one's actually been pretty useful for me from a self-diagnosis perspective. I think I've been D4 for a lot of stuff, but I come into a new job, I'm doing stuff I've never done before, I'm actually not competent in that job. And it's okay to be competent at some things, and not competent at other things if you understand that it's a natural journey that everyone's going to go through and the aim is to get somebody from D1 through to D4 as quickly as possible. Um, I'm sure you can all think of particular tasks and things that you've been asked to do, where you would be at different levels along that spectrum uh, for each of those different tasks.
1: Now the key thing with this leadership model
0: is it says that we should be matching our leadership style to the development level of the subordinate. And to do that you need to diagnose where they're at. So what's a task? How strong are their demonstrated task knowledge and skills? Have they shown that they can do this particular job? How strong are their transferable skills? I come back to the Lieutenant. The Lieutenant has strong transferable skills on how to give a set of orders. From a transport perspective, they might not know how to give a good set of convoy orders because they've never done that before, but they've got strong transferable skills. And so you'd expect them to be able to pick that up pretty quickly. How motivated are they? And how confident are they? I know people that have had great competence, but no confidence in their own ability. And that changes the leadership style that's going to get the best outcomes from that individual for that task. So the aim of the four leadership styles are then matched against that development level. And the leadership styles are based on supporting behavior and directive behavior. It's basically saying that when somebody doesn't know how to do something, you need to be more directive. If somebody isn't uh, their commitment or their confidence is low, you need to be more supporting. And there's real dangers of mismatch if we're providing the wrong leadership style to the wrong development style. And one of the challenges for us, I think, is that we've put mission command up on a pedestal. Mission Command is a great aspiration, once we've got everybody through to D4 or our organisations through to D4. If we're applying Mission Command and the people aren't competent to receive it, then it's actually an abrogation of responsibility as a leader. So when that brand new Lieutenant comes in and they're highly enthusiastic but they don't really know what they're doing, you actually need to give them a bit more direction than Mission Command would suggest. To actually bring them on that journey to actually build that competence. But they don't need a lot of support, because they're enthusiastic and they're they're going for it. And so that's where the directing style kicks in. They then start to get a little bit disillusioned, they've realised how hard it is, It actually moves more into coaching. So you're engaging with them a little bit more, you're providing them support, but you're still being, okay, here's what you need to do, what are you thinking about it, and you're still controlling the, the decisions about what happens into supporting, they're actually getting more competent. you're starting to drag more from them of how do you think you should do it, actually that sounds pretty good, I think, you know, pick one of those ways to go on, you're still providing that lot of support, but you're actually letting them get them more involved in the decision making process about how things get done to build their their confidence so you can get them down to Uh, the delegating box where pretty much you can go, mate, I know you've got this, here's what I need, crack on and that's where we'd like to be but you're not going to be there instantly and if you think about your units you've probably got individuals within it that are at different stages along that spectrum. The challenge then becomes can you afford to have this conversation with every individual that you need to do this with over time? It's actually a real challenge and uh, just show of hands how many people have been in a situation where they believe that they're at a particular development level and they've got completely the wrong leadership style? Either they've been given a task where their bosses, your boss has assumed you know what you're doing, you just go and crack on and you go, I don't know, how do I do that? Or you go, I've got this, why am I being told every step? Okay, does that resonate to people? Have you been there? Okay, lots of, lots of head nodding. So, with all these models, you can picture yourself as both the the leader and the subordinate in them. Because it it works both ways, right? Everyone's got a boss. The real value for this model, um, I have found, is when you actually have discussions about it and you normalise the ability for somebody to say, hey, uh, you're treating me like I'm D1. I think I'm D4 for this, or vice versa. Uh, it's pretty confronting to actually go into a boss and say, I don't think I'm competent in the job you've just given me. I need more guidance. But if you've had this discussion and this is a, uh, a conversation, you've normalised that free space for a lieutenant to come in and say, I could either use more direction, or I think I've got this, or, and I would get my lieutenants in, uh, again, when I was at 26, and I'd, uh, I'd make them read some stuff on this model. Because I would then be sending them across the country on a six week task with no safety net. And I'd, I did not believe they had the level of competence for the job I was asking them. And that's not their fault. And so we were looking at ways to accelerate that. And because I had that conversation with them, they understood why I wasn't just saying, go forth and crack on guys, they understood it was a journey and, to be honest, they were generally pretty relieved that we'd normalise that. Okay. So the key element with this model is actually getting that diagnosis and alignment right between the leadership style and the developmental level. And that requires good knowledge of competence and competence of your subordinates. And i found it much easier when you can have an open conversation about it. It doesn't necessarily need to be in this form, um, but to be able to have a framework to discuss and a framework of common language is uh, particularly useful. And it normalises that not everyone's high commitment, high confidence all the time. Um, and even if you're just thinking about yourself and where you fit into things and what it is that frustrates you, from a leadership perspective often frustration comes from Uh, misdiagnosis of either competence or competence and we all put on a pretty hard front of I'm D4 for everything all the time and uh, it's fundamentally not true. Uh, I've put down the bottom there danger of assumed competence. Um, I think we assume people are competent until proven otherwise and that actually often has us uh, Putting people in environments they don't necessarily need to be in. um, And we should actually be having a look at uh, assuming everybody's competent at everything is a high risk process. Any questions on situational leadership model before I hit the next model? Because it's gonna go, yeah. Sorry, all that for a quick question, but uh, I was just wondering, I saw it as the second model. I was just wondering what changed from the first model? What's been the latest update? On the. I, I just saw the, the slide previous that said it was the SL. Oh, okay, model. so this yeah. is, okay. Um, Hersey and Blanchard developed this back in the 70s as uh, a situational leadership model, and it made its way into our early leadership PAMs. Uh, Anyone ever read the 1972 leadership pen? Get a copy, it's outstanding. I was trying to get a copy, I couldn't get one. Um, Because it was a lot more practical, it had simple models, it actually had stuff I think you could use. And then for a while we went with multiple pillars that are underpinned and overarched and I'm looking at going, it's pretty, but is it useful? And so I think in some ways we've over complicated our leadership doctrine and the good news is leadership doctrine's getting a rewrite with the aim to actually make it more usable. Okay. Hersey and Blanchard split and I've got websites for both of them linked at the back of this and uh, so they developed a situational leadership model together and then they split and monetized in two different areas and voraciously protect their copyright which is uh, why we don't have um, uh, the model exactly in the doctrine uh, they changed some of the names um, they changed uh, so this is the second not, is the, the second version of it uh, fundamentally no real difference uh, but they took a little bit of the academic language out and made it a bit more. And this is Blanchard, owns the situational leadership model too. I took some of the academic language out and a little bit more catchphrasy for their facilitators to deliver to industry. But fundamentally, no significant difference to the model. Okay, I'll, I'll move on to the next one. Has anyone heard of leader-member exchange? Okay. Leader-member exchange uh, was developed in the, in the 70s, um, came out of something called vertical dyad linkages, which uh, is really unimportant. Uh, but it focuses, um, surprisingly, on the exchange between leaders and members. And what it says is that, based on those interactions, you will develop an in-group and an out-group, and you will place your people into those in-groups and out-groups, and you will treat them differently. It's not a very popular model, and nobody's monetizing it to sell to people, because it doesn't resonate, because we like to think we're better than that. But as I've described that, how many people have gone, I don't do that, but geez, I've worked for someone who does. Right. Uh, so let's have a let's have a look at the model, and I'll talk about why I think it is useful for us. Okay, it says that there's three stages: uh, role taking, role making, and routinization, which I think is a made-up word. Uh, in role taking, in our first interaction, I will be assessing you based off my expectations and values, and I will get an idea of whether you are in my in-group or my out-group. In role making. That will start to solidify over time and you will find yourself in uh, role-making, you'll find yourself in that in-group and out-group. And routinisation, that becomes the way things are. You're in the in-group, you're in the out-group and I'll treat you differently. So role-taking, they're assessed, in line with expectations around performance, work ethic, a range of different factors. The big element in role-making is that last sentence. It's often not done um, deliberately, and it's often subconscious, and you may not even realise you're doing it. And then that becomes the pattern. Okay, so how do we treat people differently? If you're in the in-group, you get a greater trust relationship, I actually give you greater responsibility, you become my go-to person or my go-to people and you get greater opportunity, you get more development through that opportunity which strengthens the cycle. If you're in my out group, I don't trust you quite as much, I'll give you fairly routine stuff but I'm, I'm not going to take a risk on you not delivering. Um, You won't get the same opportunity, you won't get the same exposure and you'll be in that out group. And once you're in one of those groups, really difficult to move between them. Okay, resonating? Right, Um, can you understand why it's not a popular leadership model? So how do we use it? When you're the member in that, Actually, understanding that this is a thing is actually useful. How many of you guys have seen the book, uh, The First 90 Days? Yeah, so a few people. I, I'd strongly recommend it as a read, uh, before you change jobs. It's, um, it doesn't talk about this specifically, but it does talk about your first interactions with your superiors, your subordinates, and ways to approach a job. There's a lot of stuff in it that you go, oh, that's a handover, we do some of that stuff. Intuitively, anyway, but it's actually a reasonable read. As the leader, challenge yourself. And I would expect you're sitting there now going, hang on, do I have an in group and an out group? Why do you have an in group and an out group? What are the factors that will get somebody into your out group? Is that reasonable? If your in group and out group factors are based on organisational values, that's probably pretty reasonable. If somebody's coming in and their adolescent brain aside, they're lying to you. That's a pretty quick way to get into my outgroup, but if my outgroup is based on things that aren't part of organisational values like gender or unreasonable expectations I may have because I'm unaccompanied and don't have a life and expect everybody else to have that same work ethic, well maybe that's not reasonable. So what can you do to make your in-group larger? Are the factors that are putting people into your out-group fair and reasonable? And then if somebody's in your out-group, what can you do to help them transition in? Now, some problems with the model, and its cross-cultural implications are actually really challenging because it's a relationship belief, and uh, that makes it difficult. it also in some ways assumes that everybody deserves to be in an in-group, whereas actually there's probably people that don't deserve to be in an in-group. Uh, it also in some ways assumes that the in-group is the right place to be. I can think of examples where I've worked at people, worked for people and looked at their in-group, out-group and gone, I don't believe I need to be in that in-group, I'm actually quite comfortable with my values and being in the out-group for that in So none of these models I put up are right. But some of them have things that can be useful. And I'm getting better at this. We need a microphone. So I'm progressing from my uh, low developmental level as we go through. Uh, Hello, sir. Um, I think it's important um, as leaders that we actually know our unconscious bias, like of what we're um, we don't actually know that we're biased towards this particular uh, group perhaps. Yep. Um, I actually did one, uh, on, like of myself and um, I didn't know this uh, but I'm biased towards uh, larger people, yet I find it funny because my husband's a larger person so yeah So this cause and effect with everything, right? Um uh, I agree comp- and one of the challenges with this is, you may not realise, and that's why it says you may not know you're doing, and, uh, and that's why the challenge is to go, hang on a second, am I treating my people differently? Actually, I am, why is that? And it was only a conversation the other day, I was thinking back of, so Lieutenant Colonel Luciani's had the misfortune of working for me twice, but we're talking about um, the first time. And what I realised was the posting cycle in the middle of my time as a subunit commander created an outgroup the new people coming in. I had a completely different relationship with the people that were there when I started because we did the whole forming, norming, storming. And then the people that came in, they were the replacements. They were actually harder to get into my in-group when they first arrived. And I actually had to make deliberate effort To actually bring them in and not just default to the guys that I'd already built the relationship with. And I'd never considered in light of this until we're discussing uh, this model after the first time I'd given the the presentation this week. That was an impact of this Leader Member Exchange model uh, and the impact of the posting cycle. I'd never considered that before. And so, uh, okay, I'll I'll move on to the uh, So there's hundreds of leadership models, there's hundreds of personality models, there's um, I now know of at least one motivation model, I'm sure there's more, Um, none of them are right, some of them might be useful and not even necessarily as they're written uh, or as they're designed to be used. Um, As you collect these, they give you different ways to think about issues and problems and you go, hang on a second, this isn't necessarily a stress management model, but I can use it for understanding tasks. And it just gives you a set of tools that you can drag out to use. And they're just a filter to view the world. And you can use them individually, and that's great, they have value. But when you share them with people to get that shared understanding of ways to view the world, they can become even more useful. And from a leadership perspective, understanding them as a subordinate is also as important sometimes as understanding them as a leader and actually different leadership styles and how that works. So just a couple of points on this, I've probably spoken about most of them as we go through. Um, How can you use the language of the model to influence superiors? That can actually be a technique of referring back to we're stuck here, these are atrophying. And if there's a common language. And there's a question, links into this, how do you support subordinates in managing it? How can you make the space for your junior commanders? to try and get out of task needs, to invest in their sections or invest in their platoons or invest in the individuals? What ability do you have to make space for them to be able to do that? And that's going to vary and that's something only you guys can look at as you do it. But if you're just judging them on task, 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 then the behaviour you're going to get is task, task, task at the expense of other things. This one's more challenging, I uh, didn't really, this isn't a broad unit thing, I've used this with lieutenants when I was a subunit commander, I used it when I was, um, I got to close and move DNSDC a couple of years ago, uh, 50 million bits of stuff in a 12 month period, with a workforce that was Army, Navy, Air Force, public service and three flavours of contractor. And we had no common language. We actually got these guys in to run some training for us that, uh, when I visited the unit the other day, it was actually good to see the public servant, guys that are still there are still using this approach to be able to understand uh, task and ability. Um, And even if you don't use the model direct, because sometimes we have an aversion to that, building an environment where it's normal to talk about competence and the competence journey that we'll go through um, can actually be really empowering. Um, especially when everybody is focused on that, um, the front that they they keep up in the workplace. And just some questions for you to think about in relation to leader member exchange. I generally find this model gets the best reaction because people haven't heard of it, and it resonates as being far too close to true. And it just gives some good things to think about. Um, and big one for me as a leader is what defines my outgroup, and how do I not make that a, a purgatory that people are condemned to forever, and actually let them move in? Okay, some links at the back that you can have a look at. You see uh, the different people trying to sell us things. Um, an older leadership model attributed to a range of Germans. People have seen that one before? Again, useful in certain circumstances. Uh, what about Dunning Kruger? Dunning Kruger talks about our ability to self-assess. And it generally says the less we know about a topic, the more we overrate our competence. And so when you think about knowing yourself um, and other people's ability to know themselves, how does that relate to? this model where uh, people with a little bit of knowledge actually vastly overrate themselves and the flip side of it is, the more competent people become, the less they rate their ability because they know all the things that they don't know. Um, So again, just a useful model that um, to have in the back of your mind for understanding and How does that play across the situational leadership model? So when you're there and the lieutenant's going, I've got this, I'm awesome, and you're going, mate, no, you are not D1. You're D4 and you haven't actually worked it out yet. And then they're going to go on that journey, uh, back to where they go. And all of these models link and overlap, and they just, for me, they just sit at the back of my mind as I'm processing things, and I go, hang on, that'll fit in that, that'll fit in that. Okay. We'll do some questions uh, and we'll see how we're running for time. Okay, yeah, cool. Okay, questions? So, when you have members that are at the different like levels of leadership like from D1 and D4 can you um, teach those different members at those levels to pass on what they know at that particular level to like fast track their uh, understanding so the beauty of this model for me is once you understand it's a journey your focus doesn't necessarily become that task it's how quickly can I get them to hear where we're building the high performing teams um, yeah absolutely uh And this is about, uh, and I'm guessing you've done it in your units where I've gone, okay, I've got the new Lieutenant coming in, here's my most experienced Sergeant, we'll make them a pair. Uh, I've got the experienced Lieutenant in. Uh, Okay, I'll have the on-promotion Sergeant. And you're trying to mitigate, uh, so whilst the individual might have low competence, The leadership team may have higher competence. Now you don't always have the luxury or the flexibility to do that but there's options that you can do for it. Um, What we did with the uh, the lieutenants I had to send out across the country was we actually stuck the 2IC as uh, an observer on one of them who basically just went along in that task builder but he was there to sort of mentor the lieutenant through the process. Sending the captain as the task commander wouldn't have actually helped develop the lieutenant. But that's sort of how we were trying to, to do it because we'd under, understood that. Uh, another, uh, slightly off the question, I was about to launch at my admin officer, back when we had admin officers, he wasn't performing, he wasn't meeting my expectations, he was about to be in my app group, he was pissing me off and I don't get pissed off pretty easily. So. I'm about to launch and then I've realised, he's a Ramey SSO and I've called him and I've gone, what have you actually been trained to do? What training have you had? And I realised the stuff that he wasn't doing, he'd never been taught to do. And I was about to launch on what I thought was an attitude problem, which actually it was an education problem. And so if I'd launched on that as an attitude problem, his attitude just would have got worse. Uh, it wouldn't have actually gone anywhere near fixing the problem and it would have spiraled badly. As it was, we were able to identify that it was a knowledge problem. Trying the knowledge, his attitude went back up, he became competent and worked through it. Uh, that was a close one for me. And what we did with him was actually partnered him with some of the other lieutenants and said, hey, suck their brains about what they've been taught. You know, it's okay for you not to know this. You've never been taught it. But he'd been having the facade on of I've got this, I've got this. But you can sort of do it with pairing and coaching and mentoring. Okay. Uh, can I ask a question without without no sir. Um, uh, there was a question in Colonel Kilpatrick's lecture about uh, about. You uh, said I've worked for you twice. You've used mentoring as a tool of your leadership for, with a lot of people for a long time through a lot of postings. Uh, can you make a couple couple of comments on? Mentoring in Command 101 for this this audience. Okay, I don't think that's mentoring. Okay, so you know the list of things I put up about uh, uh, leadership versus management, this versus that, mentoring versus coaching, mentoring versus teaching you'll get experts that will just go down rabbit holes about the difference and, oh, that's not mentoring. A mentor needs to be separate from the chain of command and a safe space. And So I'll answer your actual question. For me, leadership is about teaching. For me, leadership is about making the people I work with better at what they do. And it's providing opportunities for them to learn and understand that they're on a learning journey. So for me, leadership has always been associated with... Um, a learning journey for people, and then becoming better at what they do whilst they are working for me. And so, because I've got that as the background of how I think about leadership and organisations, I generally go into things with more of a "how do we need to develop? What do we need to develop?" approach. Because um, so, uh, and there's some different leadership models around this. There's a servant leadership element to that, there's a, um, an investment element for organisational good as opposed to a consumption element for short-term gain. Um, that has worked for me in the jobs I've had. It doesn't work in every job, but the other benefit for that is I found if I'm investing in individuals and their development, they feel valued. And I tend to get more of their discretionary effort. We had a chat with the lieutenants in syndicate with a group I had and we were talking about uh, there's toxic leadership, what's the flip side of that? What does high-performing team look like? Who's been in one and what is it? What's the real benefit of good leadership? And for me, the benefit of good leadership is about getting discretionary effort. When I've worked for good leaders, I'm prepared to put in that extra. When I've worked for not-so-good leaders, it's, uh, I'm out the door. You you haven't given me a vision I believe in. You've done nothing to develop me. You haven't necessarily got my discretionary effort. So, mentoring, I think, leads to stronger belief in the organisation and the group and individuals, and you get that cycle of... uh, discretionary effort from people where... And then they find that you can actually achieve more than you thought you could achieve. And for a lot of you guys, you're actually at a turning point in your careers. Um, Leadership up till now has generally been people that are like... leading people that are like you, broadly. As you move forward from here, that leadership environment is going to become increasingly complex and um, I spoke about leading an organisation that was Army, Navy, Air Force, um, APS and contractors. That leadership game was far more difficult than leading a subunit because we didn't have the cultural understanding. Uh, But investing in people and that mentoring, coaching, leadership piece has been fundamental for, for who I've been as a leader.